the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. The Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome, welcome, welcome. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Great to be with you tonight. Uh, so much happening and uh, really, by the way, I meant to tell you, I reported into you that last week, 10 days ago, my father visited San Diego, had a great stay. He loves San Diego. He was out there for some business. Uh, one of our listeners, I got a text from a listener, Joseph, and he said, well, how'd your dad do in San Diego? So there you have it. He had a great visit. He was with some friends of his for business and it was a good visit. So um, that's to remind you, I'm actually out on the East Coast. I live in Virginia. Virginia, uh, but I'm not of the swamp. I'm just near the swamp. And right now, today, I'm actually broadcasting from up in Philadelphia, Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. I tend to travel for my day job as the president of the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles, Phyllis Schlafly's organizations that she started in her long life. Uh, we do pro-life, pro-family work all across the country. So I'm up in Philly to do some meetings, uh, and it's uh, going to be an interesting uh, uh, interesting visit up here. So uh, good to be with you. And don't forget, you can always go, oh, by, that's another one. It was yesterday, it was um, another one of you texted me. Uh, you can always go to edmartinlive.com and sign up for my emails there. But also phyllisschlafly.com is where all of our work is chronicled. So either one of those would be great. All right. Ed Martin, Pro-America Report. Today, so what you need to know. We're going to talk in a few minutes with my friend, Dr. Paul Kengor, uh, about what's happening in general. He's over at Grove City College, also up in Pennsylvania, and uh, we'll talk about what he's up to, and lots, he'll have lots of perspective. He's a great writer, and uh, one of the things I'm going to spend some time with him one of these days is asking him about uh, Joe McCarthy, the way Joe McCarthy's characterized as the person who led a witch hunt. Um, he uh, wasn't as bad as everybody said. He was, in fact, pretty good in lots of ways. Uh, but I want to ask him about uh, Paul Kengor about comparing uh, Adam Schiff's behavior. We'll talk about that. But before we get to that, what do you need to know? What do you need to know? Well, extraordinary day today. Uh, it began in the capital, the nation's capital, if you're out here. It began, most people have normal lives and are doing lots of normal and exciting things in their lives. But out in the nation's capital, it began with the National Prayer Breakfast, which is an ecumenical interfaith prayer breakfast. And uh, those praying include everybody in politics and I think even the judiciary, they all come. And by tradition, the president's invited. He doesn't always come, but he has come frequently. This president's come every year. So it's the morning after the impeachment, uh, the non-impeachment, and the president's going to address people. And it was a stem winder, as we say. He was on. He was very somber sounding. But he basically said, I want to thank you for praying for me. And it's been a terrible ordeal for my family. And uh, I also want to say, I don't believe it when people who are doing these evil things say that they're praying for me. And Pelosi's three seats down. It was extraordinary. And he said, I don't believe it. I don't believe they pray. I don't believe they pray for me for sure. And uh, very, very, I mean, the kind of thing, if you were mad about having to go through what he went through, you wouldn't, if you were a normal politician, you do that jive. You know, you do that, oh, nice to be here. We all offer prayers of Thanksgiving. If you're Trump and you're a regular guy, you're like, this was nonsense and I'm mad. It was an extraordinary thing. Extraordinary to see, extraordinary to, uh, to witness, and extraordinary for somebody to do it. 
which would have been interesting enough to talk to you about it and to talk to you because he showed enough emotion, the president of the United States, that you could tell he was really annoyed. I mean, he was really put off by what he had to go through. That would be enough. Well, at midday today, just after, uh, I guess, noon, um, closer to 1230 uh, East Coast time, the president in the East Room with a full crowd of all his friends, he came out and he gave an hour and 15 minute. He said, it's not a press conference. I'm not going to take questions. It's not a speech. He just had notes. And he said, it's a celebration. And man, he went off. The president of the United States stood there and he, first of all, he thanked all the different people. And it was, in some ways, it was, if you're just a normal person, not worried about the politics, it was poignant. He was thanking the people that helped with his defense. He was thanking his lawyers. He, one point, he thanked his family, brought Melania up on stage, up on the little stage, brought his children up. He even thanked his son, Baron, who's about six foot three or six foot four already. He's shot up. He's looking like a young uh, man instead of a little boy when he came in just three years ago. And he thanked everyone. He thanked all the congressmen and senators. Uh, Great shout outs to Congressman Scott Perry of Pennsylvania and Elise Stefanik of New York. Those congressmen, uh, of course, the main ones, Jim Jordan and Mark Meadows and others. Uh, Great uh, salutes to Senator Josh Hawley and uh, many others and Mitch McConnell, of course. So it was kind of a thank you. Lots of thank yous. He was it was great. He thanked the staff for the house. You know, a couple of those staffers who were did a lot of work, uh, thanked his own counsels. It was a, it was a it was what normal people would do after you, you know, get through something like this. However, he also did his Trump. He went all Trump on people and he talked about how this witch hunt, how this presidency has progressed. And he did say that the FBI leadership, it was a disgrace and the FISA court disgrace and the deep state disgrace. And he went into the names. You know, he talked about Strzok and Page and McCabe and Comey. And it was wonderfully uh, real. Let's say it that way. And it was entertaining as could be. I mean, it's just unbelievably entertaining, but it was wonderfully real. And I couldn't help sitting there as, as I was sitting there. I couldn't help but thinking about uh, General Flynn and what he's going through. And I was reminded of the story that published a few days ago, you know, FBI Director Ray on Wednesday, I guess it was just yesterday, it feels like long ago, was um, up on Capitol Hill before the House Judiciary Committee being being grilled and drilled by all the folks in there. And he basically admitted that all of the lawyers, excuse me, yeah, all of the lawyers... Um, I, I take it back. I got to get it right because I don't want to be all of the FBI agents in the in the Carter Page effort, which is the beginning of all this nonsense, who are still working at the bureau have been f- referred to the internal affairs of the FBI. It's called the Office of Professional Responsibility for possible to think about that. The FBI director has referred everyone who's still working for the FBI who worked on the Carter page, which is the beginning of the Russia, Russia, Russia hoax for the uh, office of professional responsibility for disciplinary action. Now that sounds pretty good, doesn't it? Except here's the thing. The OPR, that's what it's called. That won't do anything. It's like internal affairs on a bad cop show where they are all in the tank in the same way. I'm not saying that's true at the FBI. In fact, president Trump was quick to say there's lots of FBI agents that are good. But the fact is, a lot of them aren't. A lot of them aren't, and a lot of them, and so you're, you're basically policing the police with the same police. 
And the, back to the president. So the president does his, oh, no, back to my, my, my reminder. Think about what happened. Where, where does General Flynn go? After we had the Russia hoax, we had the impeachment hoax, we had all this stuff. He's, he's been bankrupted by the deep state, by the, by the deep justice movement. Roger Stone, same thing. All these people broken, uh, Manafort, but for the fact that he helped Trump, Manafort's not in, in the hospital water. He's, I, did think he did some, I did, think he did do some things wrong. I'm not saying he didn't. I don't know. But the fact is, all these people are being persecuted because they're affiliated with Donald Trump. And I was having a conversation with a senior uh, Trump official. And I, I, I don't want to uh, I'll be a, a little bit coy about where uh, he or she works um, so to keep up. But here's here's what he or she said. If this is what they did when Trump won. Imagine what they would have done if Trump lost, meaning punishing people. If Lois Lerner in the last administration, Obama, was using the IRS to target people. What is it likely that she's going to do or someone like her in office when it had they won or if they win the next time. I mean, what I'm saying is when you what you need to know right now is that if they would if they, what we have seen of the rabid politicization, the use of power against the Constitution is a threat to the future, not just to now. Yes, Trump won. And yes, probably while Trump's in office, it's everybody, you know, the, 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 it's not going to go. Well, maybe it'll happen again. But think about what it means when Nancy Pelosi and Adam Schiff and others decide that they won't be bound by the Constitution and literally, literally, the impeachment of a president is based on whatever the House majority wants. Not on any constitutional norms, not on any history, just on whatever we want. You, you, you take the Constitution. The reason we have a Constitution is to hem in our government to limit our government, to protect our rights. And when you, you come upon a set of people that don't believe in any of it, they don't believe in objective truth, they don't believe in b- abiding by rules, then you're just dealing with power. It, it is what the Marxists say. You know, it's, it's kind of a movement, just use your power, get your power and use it. You know, whether it's Marxist or Saul Alinsky, those are sort of the same thing. But Zelensky was, he didn't like to say he was only Marxist. He thought he was broader. It's what Obama did. It's what Lois Lerner did. It's what McCabe did. It's what Comey did. They know right. And the norms, the law, the rule of law doesn't matter anymore. That's what we saw, not just in the Russia hoax and the Mueller investigation, but in the sham impeachment. And if that's the future, it may feel good today watching President Trump having won, but it won't feel good forever, for long if that's the way the country goes, because what protected we, the people, was the Constitution and the fact that it hemmed in the people in government. And I'm not sure that the government is going to be hemmed in by our Constitution anymore. That's the threat. All right, let's take a break. We'll take a break real quick. We'll come back. We'll talk more. It's Ed Martin here in the movement. Excuse me. On the Pro-America Report. That's the first time I slipped on that. The Pro-America Report. Be right back. The Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. (laughs) 
Welcome back. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Our next guest is Dr. Paul Kengor, and Dr. Paul Kengor is a professor at Grove City College and teaches the young people there, but he's also a prolific author and uh, writes, has written a number of books uh, about Ronald Reagan, about uh, Judge Clark, that's one I like a lot, uh, and uh, also about communism. He is, um, he is uh, one is called Dupes. Uh, how America's uh, adversaries have manipulated progressives. That's a good one. And maybe the most interesting recent one, uh, capturing a lot of really interesting um, moments, uh, is a pope and a president, John Paul II and Ronald Reagan. Uh, an extraordinary, let me get the title right, the, and the extraordinary untold story of the 20th century. Welcome, Dr. Kanger. How are you, sir? Hey, good, Ed. Good to be with you. Thanks. Well, I, I flagged you to get back on the show because you know everything. Um, and in this case, one of the things that you know that I wanted to ask you about is Pete Buttigieg. And I think I texted you before Buttigieg came in either first or second in Iowa. But here we are now a few days later, and Buttigieg has, has at least succeeded. He's a 38-year-old South Bend, Indiana professor uh, who's never held an office higher than mayor. And he's in the, in the sort of running to be uh, the nomination nominee for president of the United States and the Democrats. We can leave that aside. I wanted to ask you the detail. Buttigieg is from South Bend, Indiana, because his father was, in fact, a professor at Notre Dame, which is in South Bend. Walk us through who his father was, please. Well, yeah, sure, Ed. So the father was was Joseph Buttigieg. And in fact, I, I was really kind of blown away when I when I saw Pete's name there, because, I mean, you're not going to see anybody else on the planet with that with that really odd last name. Right. Um, not that my last name, Ken Gore, isn't, <laughs> isn't odd. Either. Right. But but Buttigieg, I mean, no one even knows how to pronounce it. I, 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 I think it's Buttigieg or something like that. But I don't even want to. How do you get judge out of that? Right. But right, anyway, right, the, right. so, but the the father Joseph Joseph Buttigieg was was a Notre Dame professor, extremely far left. In fact, I don't know how he even got into Notre Dame to begin with. I think he probably slipped through the faculty, and you know, not that Notre Dame is perfect, but but you you usually don't get Marxists. On, on the faculty mm-hmm. at Notre Dame, but 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 he was in fact he was a he was a Jesuit, uh, a mm-hmm. um, he was a you know considered being a Jesuit priest. Our our our, our current pope Pope Francis is the first Jesuit ever, and uh, the Jesuits are known for being very left wing modern Jesuits, liberation theology, economics. They shouldn't be, but they are. But but above all, uh, Joseph Buttigieg became an expert in Antonio Gramsci. Gramsci is spelled G-R-A-M-S-C-I. Gramsci. It's like Gramsci, but it's pronounced Gramsci. Antonio Gramsci was was one of the most important Marxists and and unappreciated Marxists ever. He was an Italian Marxist, and and above all, he he's known for. Applying Marxism to culture, you know, a lot of people would call them. They'd use the term "cultural Marxist," which I know a lot of leftists don't like. But you know, Marxism applied to culture. Okay, there you go. Right. Um, he right. he had all these so-called prison notebooks, of which um, two of them, prison notebooks 
26, and I forget the other number, were called Cultural Matters 1 and 2. So he's all about, about bringing Marx into the culture. And he, he died in a prison in Italy, tossed in prison by Mussolini, 1937, I think that was. He was like around 46 years old. He died pretty young. But, but Pete Buttigieg's father, Joseph Buttigieg, was not only the leading authority in all of the West, arguably maybe even in the world, on, on Gramsci, uh, and the editor of Gramsci's prison notebooks, but he headed. He was the head of the International Gramsci Society. And, and, and I've, I've, I've got two, volume one and two, actually two and three right now, of the prison notebooks on my, on my desk. And Ed, the, the very final person that Joseph Buttigieg thanks at the end of the acknowledgments of each of those is his son, Pete. For, for, really? Um, for Pete, yeah, yeah, for, for, for Pete's help and support. And and these, yeah, and and I, I mean, I've heard but not been able to confirm that that Pete might have done some translation work and so forth. I'm not right. totally sure. Now, you know, of course, this doesn't mean that Pete is a Marxist, right? But but his right. father was, and right. and he would well, and, 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 and of, yeah, and. Yeah. and Right. It means it means size as as uh, uh, you know, and you have a pack of kids. You got it more kids than I do. I mean, you, you're, who your children are around and who they hear from does form them. So it doesn't. It's not. It's not predetermined that just because your parents go right. to church, you're going to go to church. But there's a lot that says that direction. By the way, we're talking to Paul Kengor. One of the books, Paul, that I want to pull this out on is called The Communist. You're, you're one of your books. Now we're talking about Paul's many books. It's called The Communist. I found it so interesting when I read this. It was it was after Obama was in his second term that I read. The book is called The Communist Frank Marshall Davis, The Untold Story of Barack Obama's Mentor. Now, so again, Frank Marshall Davis, a far left radical who really had a relationship, and the book is fascinating, a friendship. You know, he was a a mentor to Obama. Obama later denied it and all. Uh, But I guess my point is, Buttigieg is now in the finals, you know, for the Democrat nomination. If you're a, if you're exposed to, and let's say you're uh, sympathetic to, uh, to your father and his studies, what's that mean for your politics? I mean, he's supposed to be the moderate guy, not the, the not the lefty like right. Biden. Are we? I mean, excuse me, not the lefty like Warren and Bernie. He's supposed to be like Biden. Are we looking at somebody who's playing the same game Obama played, which is soft pedal where you really are, sound like you're a centrist, and appeal to your, you know, your your fresh new look? What do you think? Well, what's interesting about Pete's case, Ed, is is he's a cultural radical, and 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 Gramsci and and the Gramsci Society, they're about pl- applying Marx to culture, and so mm-hmm. I mean, never before in the history of, of of American politics have we had. I mean, look look what just happened in Iowa. I don't know where they're both going to finish, but but Bernie and and Pete are the top two. In Pete, you've got a man who's married to another man. And and yeah. with 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 Bernie Sanders, you have a, a, a former Trotskyist. But Bernie was right. a member of the was it Bernie was an actual presidential elector to the Socialist Workers Party in 1980. That's the party founded by Trotsky that that splintered off. This is all their <laughs> website. Go to the Socialist Workers Party. Look it up. It's go to the about section. It's off the top of my head, but it, I mean everyone knows this. It was started in 1928 by Trotsky. So, so you know, the party of JFK and Harry Truman 
you now have the top two guys, um, an ex Trotskyist Socialist Workers Party guy in Bernie, uh, Buttigieg, whose father was a cultural Marxist and expert on Gramsci, and Buttigieg is married to a man. I, I, I mean, you know, this is no matter where you stand on these things, you have to acknowledge this party's really gone beyond, so far to the left that, that you know, if, 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 if you if you exhume the bodies of JFK and Harry Truman, I mean, they're flipped over. It's just <laughs> unbelievable to see this. We're talking to well, Paul Kangor uh, uh, about from Grove City College and uh, author of many books. And I'll put this, uh, especially the one, The Communists, I put up on social media. It's from a few years ago. Um, and uh, Paul, uh, I guess, yeah, almost five, uh, 2002. Uh, Paul, do you, again, I want to ask you different. I want to go back to this question. Is Buttigieg, in your estimation, I know and you can't read his mind, and I'm not, but I'm saying you, wa- you watch patterns in, in politics, too. Obama ran as a as a moderate. He ran, you know, he was he didn't run as a revolutionary. He distanced himself from uh, uh, Davis, you know, Frank Marshall Davis. He distanced himself from Jeremiah, from Jeremiah Wright. He sounded very friendly to the you know the middle of the country. We got to have blue, no, not just red and blue America, but you know whatever it was together America, all that stuff. And then he governed as a leftist and put in power leftists. I mean, real leftists. Is that do you think that's what Bur- uh, uh, Buttigieg is doing, or maybe say differently, is that what a Marxist would do? Would you would you run as a moderate to, to, to govern as a leftist? Well, I, I, look, Obama had promised, in fact, it was you know from, from your home state. He was in Columbia, Missouri. And I think it was around October 30th, 2008. And that's where he stood up there and said, we are, what, four or five days away from fundamentally transforming yeah. the United States of America. Yeah. And the people behind him, like it. a bunch of <laughs> seals, Right, we're just clapping yeah, and yeah. cheering and jumping up and down. And that, that, I, to that, to this, to this day, that makes me sick to my stomach. To to see yeah. Americans standing there, mindlessly, obliviously clapping for somebody who wants to yeah. quote fundamentally transform the United States of America. Yeah. Why yeah. would you elect anybody to do that? Right. Yeah. I, I mean, he wasn't promising, promising just changing some the fundamental transformation, which um, to bring it back to a cultural issue. You want a picture of the fundamental transformation under Obama? Look at the, the day the Obergefell decision was passed when the White House was illuminated in the colors of the rainbow flag. That is a fundamental transformation. And you see the fundamental transformation of the Democratic Party with um, a guy like Buttigieg, who um, yeah. through Obergefell married another man. So, so yeah. he is. So, so in, in a way, yeah. I don't know. They're kind of trying to, I guess, sort of Ed, run like moderates. But if, if, if just anybody pays attention to anything that they say, did, did you see the the, the president not, yeah. of Democrats for Life? Right, a few no. days ago. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Confront, yeah. Yeah, she confronted Buttigieg in, in in Iowa and asked if there was a place in the party for a pro life Democrat, and he basically said no. Right. Yeah. So, so, no, I mean, it's true. It is. It, that's it's not. They're not there. hiding it. They're not hiding it. Very well. All right, Paul. I got to run. Paul Kengor, as always, very helpful. We'll take a break and be right back. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. Be right back. The Pro America Report with Ed Martin on the Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Welcome back, Ed Martin here in the Pro America Report. Hey, so here's a question. I don't know if you ever thought about this. What would you prefer? If Major League Baseball passed a rule that said every team can only have one foreign player, 
let's say two on a 25 man roster, you can have two foreign players, uh, not just foreign born, but foreign citizens. It's what happens in places like Italy in basketball. In Italy in basketball, the Italian Pro Basketball League will allow one or two American players to come over there because if you let American players come, you just have American players playing ba- uh, playing basketball in Italy, right? The Milan team would have eight Americans. So you're allowed to have one or sometimes two players who are uh, not Italian so the Italians can play. So if you say out loud, uh, hey, I don't want to allow Dominican players to be able to come except one per team let's say two per team. Think about what that would do. And, and actually it's sort of foreign to the American ear. And that, but this is, by the way, this is what, this is what um, the late Phyllis Schlafly uh, said in an essay once as a sort of exercise to, to, uh, to uh, indicate uh, what we're talking about in terms of the policies of the American government. So what am I, what am I getting at here? So the late Phyllis Schlafly, who she named me to be her successor at the Phyllis Schlafly Eagles. I, I do that work across the country, my day job. And again, you can go to phyllisschlafly.com to find out more. Uh, and you can even get the Pro America Report, the link to our show where we post them as a, a, a podcast later. You can get that all there. But here's the point. For far too long in this country, we, the policies have been that we are so happy to get more uh, business and investment that we don't act protectively for our own people. And it has almost become sort of uh, uh, the, the guiding you know, mantra of the American capitalist free market system that, oh, yeah, you know, uh, profits will you know, uh, maximize if you allow more uh, movement and it'll all work out. And, you know, don't worry, you know, people are getting wealthier even if jobs are going overseas. Here's one that was, a, it was almost like religiously chanted was that trade wars are bad. You can't raise tariffs because trade wars are bad. Well, Donald Trump has shown in the last two or three years, trade wars work fine. You just have to be the stronger party in the trade war. And you have to be bigger and mightier and stronger. And we have been with China, with other countries. But one of the great um, sort of shifts in our mindset has to be putting American workers first. And the biggest businesses in the country don't want to let that happen. So, for example, uh, what am I what am I mean on this one? Well, the, some of the biggest companies, Google, uh, some of the, you know, a lot of the tech companies use what's called an H-1B visa and they get it through the, the government and they have to be granted a certain number, a couple hundred thousand a year. They go to India and they get very technical people like engineers. They go to China, engineers, Japan, engineers, and they bring in people to do technical jobs. And you say, oh, well, they must need them here. There must not be Americans can do the job. That's a lie. There are plenty of Americans who can do the same jobs that they're giving away to Indians and Chinese and Japanese. And I'm not against any of those people. I'm not against any of those communities. But there are plenty of people. The reason why Silicon Valley likes that is because they pay less and they work more. Let me say that better. The big companies get to pay the people less who are on H-1B visas and the people who are here moved here to work, they have to work longer hours because if you don't hold your job with the company that hires you, you can lose your visa. So the mindset shift that has to happen in this country is that it's not a bad thing to be protective of American jobs. Here's another thing that happens a lot. American workers who are, are called well, they use the term rebadged, rebadged and rebadged means that there's an American company and they'd fire thousands and thousands of workers, very short notice. 
And then they turn around and they are asked if they want to work for an outsourcing company and they rebadge them. So now you're working for the outsourcing company and you're training other people. And this is usually foreign workers, especially outside the United States, but sometimes inside. And you're basically churned and you're stuck. You don't have a choice because if you're fired on short notice and you're offered a chance to be rebadged, you're saying, well, it may not be great and it may be a terrible thing in a year when, I'm, when they run, run me out of this job, but it's all I have. It's happening all the time. It's happening all the time. Go on the Internet and do a search for rebadged and you'll see that it happens far more. And the reason is money, profits. And I'm not against profits, but I'm for policies that don't reward the behavior that damages American jobs, that takes away American jobs. And the mindset that used to exist in this country before President Trump had all of these holy uh, like chants, as I mentioned, that you know that free markets are always the best, it'll equal out, uh, free movement of labor, it'll all equal out, and everything equals out, and it all equal out. It doesn't equal out. It doesn't equal out for families. It doesn't equal out for individuals. It doesn't equal out for you know the ability to get married and have kids and buy a house. It doesn't equal out for that. And we have now seen that a lot of the so-called, you know, um, tried and true lesson, tried and true lessons of the market haven't really been true. And again, the best example is trade wars. Everybody said, oh, you can't have a trade war with China. It'll crash the economy. Clearly it's worked. Clearly it's worked. If people need to come here for our markets, if people need to come here for our businesses, our technology, whatever it is, we ought to have policies that protect our workers. Not policies that artificially do it. I'm not saying that, you know, you get a dumb person and you say you have to hire him as opposed to getting somebody who's smart. That's not a fair thing. A highly trained person and you say, no, we want you to hire someone who's not highly trained. But we have all the kinds of employees, all the kinds of training that is needed. We have policies that allow this churn and rebadging and offshoring and outsourcing and I just think we have to be creative now about thinking through what the mindset is on exactly uh, what we want to happen, not what is going to happen left to the, the, uh, to the devices of the market only. That's my point. All right. Uh, that was, by the way, that article someone sent me rebadging was sent by uh, one of our listeners in Orange County who listens up in Orange County sent this, said they saw this about their own experience. So uh, telling. All right. Let's take a break. When we come back, we're going to talk about uh, the Limbaugh family, the Limbaugh family of Missouri, Rush Limbaugh's family. Be right back. It's Ed Martin here on the Pro-America Report. Be right back. The Pro-America Report with Ed Martin on The Answer San Diego. Welcome back. Ed Martin here in the uh, Pro-America Report. Great to be with you. I, I want to f- uh, finish off tonight with a little bit of a conversation about the Limbaugh family from Missouri. Um, you know, you all listeners know I'm from St. Louis. The last quarter of a century I lived in the St. Louis area. I live now in Virginia. But um, I had the chance early on in my time in St. Louis to meet some of the Limbaugh's. And when I first met the Limbaugh family, of course, everybody knew Rush Limbaugh. Uh, but there's this is an extraordinary family, especially for lawyers. Um, there's lawyers everywhere. They're all Limbaugh's and they're business people. And the Limbaugh family is from Cape Girardeau, Missouri. And they are, the family comes from a long line of lawyers and, and business people and all. Uh, but um, in, in specifically, I discovered in the last five or ten years that the matriarch of the Limbaugh family uh, is was a woman named Millie 
Limbaugh, who was close with Phyllis Schlafly. And so she was this conservative icon of uh, of the area. This is long before Rush Limbaugh, by the way. This is Millie. Um, she passed away, I think, in, in 2000. Um, but she lived and, and was um, uh, was so well known uh, around the area. And her family did. And so she had a whole bunch of uh, family. And so I got to know um, the and she was married to the original uh, Rush Limbaugh. Um, which uh, who I think he passed away. I can't remember for sure when he, when he passed away too. Maybe pre predeceased her. But my point here is, over the years, I've gotten to know this family, and I've gotten to respect the goodness that they do in the community. Rush, you might know Rush Limbaugh's brother David is a great writer. David Limbaugh, especially on uh, Christianity and apologetics, extraordinary, a wonderful guy, really, really a, a impressive guy. Uh, Rush Limbaugh's cousins. Our lawyer, Steve Limbaugh, one of his cousins, is a really close friend of mine. He's an extraordinary judge, uh, was on the Missouri Supreme Court and is a federal judge. His father, Steve Limbaugh, the father of the current federal judge, was himself a federal judge and, and one of the, widely regarded as one of the best uh, in the Eastern District of Missouri for many, many years. And so I have this extraordinary family, including uh, I was intrigued and smiled when I realized that uh, my old stomping grounds as chief of staff to the governor, uh, one of the uh, Limbaugh's, Chris Limbaugh, is now the general counsel to the governor of Missouri. Uh, he had been a prosecutor down in Cape Girardeau. Anyway, I wanted to share that because the news about Rush Limbaugh was uh, shocking to a lot of people. And, and you know, the idea that he would get sick and not be a voice um, heard by so many. But it's kind of one of these things that to put in context, it's an extraordinary family. It's an extraordinary family uh, of people who care about America and from top to bottom, another guy's Andy Limbaugh, cousin of Russia's, who's a, he's kind of a healthcare expert and has been around. And, and there's Limbaugh's that are in Hollywood. Uh, one of the Limbaugh's is a, is a mu- musical guy and a creative guy and is in Hollywood doing still conservative. None of the Limbaugh's are, it feels like they fall away from being uh, God fearing Americans who love the country. But I had a sense of sadness watching Rush face this illness because I don't know him. In fact, I will tell a quick story about meeting Rush Limbaugh. Um, we, I was hosting, uh, this is an extraordinary story. I was hosting um, Justice Scalia, who was visiting St. Louis and was coming in for just one day. And uh, he was coming, flying into St. Louis. We, he came in on a, a private plane uh, we, we got for him to come in. He came in and was uh, present at the Red Mass, the Catholic Mass for lawyers. Then he went and spoke at the Missouri Bar Association, a big, huge luncheon with 1,000 people, maybe 2,000. Then he met with uh, students of the Federalist Society. And then we jumped in a car and drove down to Cape Girardeau, where he spoke at, uh, at Southeast Missouri State. And uh, and and it was a wonderful, uh, a wonderful uh, convocation, probably 5000 people, maybe more. But as soon as the event ended uh, and Justice Scalia finished speaking, we went off the stage and there was marshals, federal marshals, and they had us uh, jump in cars. And we were going up to Judge Steve Limbaugh's home. He was then on the Missouri Supreme Court and Judge Steve Limbaugh was hosting dinner for about 25 people. And so Justice Scalia and myself jump in a car. We get up to the house where we're going, and we don't know we're ahead of everyone else because we got out of the event so quickly because we were in the marshals in a you know black suburban. And we're standing in front of the house, and we knock on the door, and the door swings back, and it's Rush Limbaugh, who I'd never met. It turns out Rush had never met Scalia. And for about 15 minutes before anyone else arrived, we stood on the back deck, 
And Rush Limbaugh said, I brought cigars for you, Cuban cigars. Would you like to smoke one? And Justice Scalia said, no, I smoke cigarettes. And he took out a cigarette. And, and he said, but Martin might smoke one. And I was handed a cigar from Rush Limbaugh, Cuban. And I don't like cigars. I, I just don't. I like get allergies. I don't like them. And so, but I smoked it. And I'm standing on the back deck for about 15 minutes, this extraordinary meeting of these two people. And to, to describe Rush as I knew him, I saw him, and in that context, he was, he was like a, I would have been. He was like a, you know, he was a schoolboy. Now, he's a superstar, right? But he was just deferential and interested, and it was a great conversation. It was amazing. Otherwise, I've, I don't know Rush uh, except that one time I met him. But I just wanted to kind of broadly salute the family. There'll be lots of people that are talking about Rush, and we're praying for him. Uh, and I think he's got the best doctors. Is the president said he's got the best fighting spirit? Uh, but you suddenly don't know when, say, his radio run might start to end. Right? He maybe he decides in, in these years he doesn't want to have to do radio every day or whatever. And yet, so much of what's gone on in that family will go on. Just extraordinary. Uh, generosity that they have in the community, uh, in Cape Girardeau, in St. Louis, across the country. It's one of the most wonderful families uh, in terms of the influence they've had, uh, Rush included, of course, but also for all these brothers and cousins. And again, I go back to uh, what Phyllis Schlafly, I once asked her, I said, what about um, Millie Limbaugh? And she said, oh, Millie Limbaugh would come up from Cape Girardeau. She would get things done. And that's a pretty high compliment for the late Phyllis Lafley. She would get things done. Uh, it's about as high a compliment as you could expect for all these women that were fighting back the ERA and fighting to keep the Republican Party pro-life and raising kids and all these kinds of things. It was amazing. So my um, my great affection and esteem to the Limbaugh family, I'm glad that they the whole family got a lot of attention uh, this past week uh, with uh, Russia's um, uh, Presidential Medal of Freedom. That was very cool uh, for uh, the president to make happen and great for the country. So uh, good for them. And you, if you do a quick search, you'll find lots of references. Millie uh, Limbaugh and uh, the family. I just actually found uh, a picture of her uh, and Rush uh, years ago now. Um, so it's a wonderful family. So I just will be keeping them in our prayers. We wish Rush the best. I I will tell another quick story. I was driving with Phyllis Schlafly in the last year of her life, um, probably about six months before she died. So it was probably spring, late spring of 2016. She'd endorsed Trump and we're, we're driving somewhere. And it was one of those sunny days is midday. And we have rush on the radio and um, we're, and it looks like Phyllis falls asleep. She's 91, almost 92 at this time. And you know, you're driving. I was sleepy and I was driving. And but she closed her eyes and I thought she was asleep and I was driving and Rush said something and without opening her eyes she chuckled. I heard her chuckle and she said, "Boy Rush, he sure gets it" or something like that and she she just laughed. He is the most amazing for somebody who does radio. The most I could tell you, most amazing combination of talent, real talent and honed honed skill in terms of storytelling, connecting with the audience, the things he does, just extraordinary and appreciated by so many. So uh, that's my Rush Limbaugh stories and the Limbaugh family, great family. Uh, And uh, again, um, read David Limbaugh's books because he will uh, teach you uh, about the Bible and about your faith. Extraordinary uh, guy. Uh, All right. We've got a few things to wrap up. I do want to make sure and let you know, I just got a text from one of our folks last night. Uh, and it is phyllisschlafly.com is the website. And if you go to phyllisschlafly.com, you'll find all of our radio shows and radio commentaries too. But you can go to the answer, san diego.com and get the show as a, um, 
as a podcast uh, soon after the um, soon after the show is over. They'll post that up there so you can go to the answer. But also phyllisschlafly.com. For those of you, uh, as Rush would say, in Loma Linda, uh, Phyllis Schlafly is P-H-Y-L-L-I-S-S-C-H-L-A-F-L-Y.com. It's a little bit of a spelling test, but there you have it, and, uh, and you, you'll get there. So that's one thing. Another one is, oh, I, a text from one of the listeners, email from one of the listeners about um, – the pro-life issue. The president was talking pro-life at the State of the Union, and the question came up about the platform of the Republican Party, and then the question was, when is the convention? The Republican convention is as late as I've ever heard it, August 24th through 27th uh, this year. That's the latest I've ever heard it. I guess the president wants to do it later and have a better run-up for uh, the election, but uh, that's when the platform will be decided, and I guarantee it'll be pro-life. All right, we better wrap things up. Thank you, as always, to Noah, our technical director right there in San Diego, Joanna for helping us produce the show out of St. Louis. Thank you for listening, and we will be back tomorrow. It's Ed Martin here in the Pro-America Report. Talk to you then.